Well, open up your Bible, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 18. This morning I want to talk to you about something uh, I think is terribly important for us to realize in a day and age of, of uh, a philosophy of ministry that says everything's always going to be easy, everything's always going to be good. Uh, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, you know that uh, we have a great deal of hope, right? We have, a, have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We have a peace that passes all comprehension. We have joy that is often not even able to be expressed properly or fully, for sure. But you also know that you do run into some hard times along the way, right? There are crises in the Christian life, contrary to what most books today would tell you, most ministries might uh, make you think, there are times that as believers and as church families, we encounter difficulty. Don't be dismayed by that, right? Second Timothy chapter three, God promised us that. Again, not the kind of promise you have embroidered on a pillow and put in your house, you know, but he says, you know, in the end, difficult times will come, right? And that, that's a pastoral warning. It's a personal warning as well. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, even Paul, as he left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, warned them that, you know, there's going to be wolves that will try to come in from time to time. And because of that, I think it's important that we refocus ourselves to look at the truth of Scripture. How do I respond when there's a crisis? How do I respond when my, my faith is put to the test? We will all end up in some sort of crisis situa situation, a time that'll show what we are truly trusting in. When the doctor says that your test results came back and it's malignant, when your boss says you're fired, when the bank wants your business, when your finances are crumbling, when your spouse says, I don't love you anymore, when your faith is challenged, uh, how do you respond? How do you stand for what is true? And what, what the point is here is, is all through Scripture, as we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, the call is to be ready. The call is to be prepared, not simply just react when it happens, but to prepare yourself with a mindset that says, you know what, my foundation is strong and deep, and it is built upon a mighty and awesome God who is good, who is omnipresent, who is omnipotent, who is sovereign, who can work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. So if you've got your Bibles open to 1 Kings 18, I want to I show you a man of God in such a situation. This is God's man in a crisis, okay? Now the background of our story goes something like this. You know the kingdom of Israel, right? Uh, <clears throat> Israel, the Hebrews, were God's chosen people, not because they were the best, not because they were biggest, but because God sovereignly chose to put his love upon them, right? Uh, along the way, as God was their king, they decided they wanted a king, right? Like all the other nations. So they kind of looked around, they find the right guy. He was taller than the rest and he was kind of the, the king like the Gentiles have. So they said, God, we want him. And God says, you sure you want him? And they said, yeah, I want him. And they're like, okay, I'm gonna give you what you're asking for. And they gave, he gave him a person by the name of Saul who was not the right man for the job, but God was teaching him that, hey, what, do you want something other than me? Saul's ministry was, uh, as king was, was very, very poor, of course, for the most part, and uh, there were victories at times, but it was a tough time for Israel. After that, God says, okay, now I've got a guy that I want to bring into the picture. I'm preparing. Saul's been unfaithful. I've been preparing this guy. His name is David. 
And David, as you know, becomes a great, the greatest king of Israel, right? Uh, the greatest king there ever really was. He was a man after God's own heart. David then has his own problems, of course, and he has a son named Solomon who takes over, uh, over all of Israel as well. He has a son then, when he dies, named Rehoboam who takes over. And Rehoboam uh, really made some critical errors that led to the kingdom of Israel being split, right? Ten northern tribes, which were later called, which were called Israel, and ten, two southern tribes called Judah, right? So the kingdom became divided at that point because Rehoboam did not seek after God's way, but he sought after his own way, and then is what his friends were saying he ought to do and all that kind of stuff. And you can go read that uh, story. It's quite interesting, and you'll find it to be instructive on how you deal with difficult situations, but that's another one. Anyway, Jeroboam had come and he had said, you know, we'll serve you. We'll come back together. We'll, we'll follow uh, and serve the Lord with you. Just, just make it a little easier on us. Quit being as harsh on us as your father was. And, and Rehoboam decided not to do that. And there was the division. After that, there came a period of seven kings, right? 40 years of continued moral, religious decline or assassinations. It's quite the story. It would make a good TV movie or something. By the time we get to where we're at now, we're on a, a king of that group. His name is Ahab, okay? Ahab is like the bottom of the barrel, as it were. He's the worst. They have hit rock bottom with this guy. First Kings 16, 30 says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all of those who were before him. A few verses later, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This guy was rock bottom. This was, Israel finds itself in a crisis. Israel finds itself at zero hour at the bottom. And if Ahab's not bad enough, he's got a wife named Jezebel. How many of you know people named Jezebel? Right? Why? Because this gal was, she made Ahab look like, I was gonna say the Pope, that doesn't work. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's at this time when Israel's at rock bottom that something amazing happens. God, who is sovereign, right? Who has a plan, who is always working even when situations don't look like they're being worked on. At this time, God's champion arises. And he comes really out of nowhere. He's a guy almost without a history in a way. And he comes out of nowhere and he prophesies because of the disobedience, there's gonna be this drought and it's an opportunity really during this drought for Israel to repent, for Ahab to repent. Ahab doesn't repent. In fact, it gets worse. Uh, they persecute the prophets. Uh, in fact, one fellow by the name of Obadiah who comes into our story, uh, he, he was a man who feared God, who was within Ahab's system, but he took a hundred prophets and hid them in a cave and fed them just to kind of protect them. And it's this Obadiah who Ahab sends out, really. And while he's out, he encounters our, our guy, God's champion, Elijah. And he, and he encounters this. And, and in this process, what happens, long story short, is there's a meeting set up between Elijah and Ahab. And again, at this moment, Israel's in crisis. Almost all the nation had turned away from God. And Elijah was a man of God, folks, who could have said, you know what? These guys don't deserve to hear the truth anymore, right? 
I mean, come on, they've had every opportunity. I'm going somewhere where people want to hear. He could have taken his ball and gone home, but he didn't. And what he does here is he exhibits for us, I think, a great model of how true faith behaves in a crisis. And here we're going to look at Elijah this morning and see what we can learn. Okay, you got your Bibles open. 1 Kings 18, we're at verse 17. I'm going to read a long passage of scripture. Are you ready for that? Is it okay to read a lot of scripture in church? All right, I know that's kind of rare for us, especially when I'm moving through an epistle because I can do one and that's enough for a few weeks. But here we go. I'm going to read through the whole thing. Don't fall asleep, fall along. All right, and listen to the story. Then we'll go back and look at it in detail. Verse 17. It came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message to all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let us give let them give us two oxen. Let us choose one ox for themselves, them, and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and I'll lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, this is a good idea. <laughs> so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourself and prepare it for you. First, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire under it. Then they took the ox, which was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made, and it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he's occupied, or he's gone aside, or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. <clears throat> so they cried with a loud voice and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. And it came about when midday was past that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. And he arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar. And it also filled the trench with water. 
Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening, evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. As we look at this passage, I want us to see three crucial components of true faith in a crisis so that we're able to better deal with crises that we encounter today. You have these on your outline. The first one you'll see there is that faith in a crisis is founded upon essentials, okay? You, you have to have the foundation correct, right? There needs to be convictions about the non-negotiables that you cling to tightly and that you never let go. You need to have convictions and you need to know what you believe. How else do you know when to stand? How else do you know when to, uh, to uh, compromise in the best sense of the word? And say, so, you know what? This is not a hill to die on. But that is. We need to know. How do you find that out? There's only one place, right? We saw that last week in the study of Joshua, and that is the word of God. God has given us his word. Is that pretty awesome or what? I mean, he, think about this for a minute. He took that book. He has had it written by many authors over many years. He has had it preserved without error into our hands so that we may know what he wants in whatever situations we face. Think about that. Verse 17, it came about when Elijah, when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab says to him, hey, is this you, the troubler of Israel? <laughs> now, that boggles your mind, right? Because who is the troubler of Israel? It's not Elijah. In fact, it's the one saying those words. And that's exactly, I love this about Elijah, because he's like, this is his conviction, right? He's not afraid to, lie. he's not like standing back going, well, uh, <clears throat> I might be the troubler of Israel and... Uh, mocking humility in some way or something like that. And there's a place for that, for humility, not mocking it. But he, he knows so clearly what the problem is that he just says it. And he doesn't say it with pride and he doesn't say it with uh, a self-righteousness. He says it based on truth. Did you know it's okay to speak truth in love? He says... I've not troubled Israel. That's just a fact. He's not saying anything ugly. He says, you and your father's house have. Now that could be an inflammatory statement if it's not based upon facts, right? And doesn't need to be said, but it needs to be said. Why? Because he's the king, he's the leader, he's the one that's standing over it. And he says, you and your father's house have because you, and here's the fact, right? You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, L. O-R-D, capitals in your Bible, you'll notice there, that's the covenant name for Israel, Yahweh. You, you've forsaken what Yahweh has said to do. 
And instead of following the covenant God, Yahweh, you have decided and led these people to follow Baal. That's just a fact, right? See, Elijah knew what was non-negotiable. He's not fighting over something that's a gray area or something that's negotiable. He says, you've forsaken the commandments. He knew God's commands. He could see that that was forsaken, so it was a clear thing. You have followed the Baals, he says. It's interesting there because in the Hebrew, to add that definite article in front of Baal, it is like a derisive thing here where he's saying, you followed, of all things, the Baals. He knew idolatry is unacceptable to a holy and jealous God, right? He says, what you've done is wrong. And as we get ready for our crisis situations, folks, do we know the word of God and clear enough to understand what his non-negotiables are? What are we willing to stand for? That's important. Absolutely important. How do you do that? You have to be in the word of God constantly, right? Regularly, consistently, like we talked about last week. Uh, There is a serious lack of the knowledge of the word of God in churches today. And because of that, churches are flailing around and ineffective. Too many of us know uh, just enough Bible to be dangerous. We think the epistles are the apostles' wives or something, right? Right? God's word. It can distinguish between right and wrong and it points to us and it judges us and it helps us to understand what is it that our God expects from us. Somebody once said, idolatry ain't what it used to be. I mean, we're not following the Baals, right? But is our idolatry in this generation any different to serve money or prestige or power? Those are just idols of a different kind of decoration, aren't they? When a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. When a man seeks his fulfillment in his job and in his job alone, he is seeking God, a God. Look at what Elijah does here. This guy, I love Elijah, because Elijah is absolutely a take charge type A personality, right? He says, he's he's talking to the king, right? And look what he says. He says, now king, (laughs) he starts to give him instructions. Look at verse 19. Now then send and gather to me all of Israel at Mount Carmel, king, uh, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat it, by the way, here's a a little just jab right here, right? Who eat at Jezebel's table. You've led them all the way into your home at that level. And Elijah, because of the conviction of God, because God's man is, is standing so firm, he, he, he does this, right? He doesn't have to do this as king, but he does. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. See, Elijah understood that part of what had to happen to deal with this crisis at hand was, ba- was, was to deal with this idolatry issue. He knew that the Lord God is a jealous God. So he asked for the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah to come. He knew that there wasn't a compromise. Well, maybe, you know, that's what Solomon really did, right? He had a hill over here to worship God and a hill just across the valley to worship all the idols. And he had this kind of, he was, you know, keeping one foot in one area and one foot in the other area. And that just was a messed up plan, right? 
There's no place for compromising on non-negotiables. And so he's going to bring this together and he's going to, he's going to deal with this. There's a, there's a, a, a mindset today that says, let's just put all our differences aside. And I'm not saying there aren't differences that you should put aside, but those differences never, folks, fall into the areas of non-negotiables. You understand? We don't put aside, well, they don't believe in the virgin birth, so let's get together and do some stuff together. No, that doesn't work. They don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. He's just a great teacher. Can't we just lock arms and do something? No. The trend is to just throw that stuff aside and it's like Rodney King famously said, can't we all just get along? No, not on non-negotiables. It's not popular. Solomon knew this, right? Remember 1 Kings 3, what did he ask for of all over everything? He asked for what? Wisdom, right? And you remember when the baby, remember the baby that two moms were claiming the baby? Do you remember the story? Yeah, right? One of them's like, well, that's my baby. The other one's like, no, that's my baby. And he's like, well, we'll figure this out. Bring me a sword. I'll give each of you half the baby. One of them says, fine, do it. And the other one says, well, no, don't do that. Just let her have it. He knew instantly, right, who the real mom was, the one who wanted to really spare the baby. He had a wisdom. He had, he had that kind of understanding, but yet he had a hard time putting that into practice at time, right? And these things uh, inched into the system of Israel until at this point, it's just part, of, part and parcel of who Israel is. Baal, that's our guy. The Asherah, that's our guy. What else do we want to put on our God shelf? God is a jealous God and he has no room for other gods in your, my life, or the life of a church, right? That's a non-essential. That's an essential, a non-negotiable. And we went, when we run into a crisis that contradicts essentials, folks, we must stand firm, okay? So true faith is founded on essentials. You have to know your essentials so that you'll handle the crisis well. By the way, say, what does that have to do with me getting back you know, a test that says my tumor is malignant? Well, what are some non-essentials that could affect that? Or, I keep saying that, non-negotiables that could affect that. Is my God sovereign? You know what sovereignty is, right? He's rule over everything, right? Is, is my God gonna get thwarted by Satan? So, in other words, I have a malignant because of my sin and I overrode God or because of, uh, you know, because somehow God didn't want that to happen. I never will forget one time our, a, a guy in our community died in Kansas and they had this community-wide guy. Everybody knew we had it at the school and the pastor got up and said, God didn't want this to happen. I just want you to know that. And I just like, is all you do, not just stand up and say, what? Right? Now, God may not have wanted it to happen in a sense. You know what I mean? It was not his desired plan from before the foundations of the world that Sin came into the world and that all these things happened. That was not what he wanted in a sense, I suppose, but he certainly knew it was gonna happen. He certainly allowed it to happen, right? And he's certainly working it together for good, true? So if I have, uh, if I have an understanding of, of the, the foundation of God's character that he is omnipotent, he can do anything, right? He's powerful enough to fix anything if it needs to be fixed or to allow it to stay if it needs to stay. If I know that he's sovereign, that nobody can thwart him, right? If I know that he's good and he's caring for me in my cancer, in my financial situation, he's teaching me and bettering me, how does that change the way I attack a crisis? 
Think about that for a minute. No longer do I look at the crisis as something that Satan just threw into my life unbeknownst to God, but I look at it and say, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to be carved and shaped into God's image. He's working this to make me more like Christ. That's why James says in James 1, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that that produces in you a maturity, a change that makes you more fit as a child of God, more fit for the kingdom of heaven, as it were. That's a great thing. We are so tied to our health and our wealth down here that we have trouble thinking about those things in terms of a positive, that we would not give our health or our wealth to be more holy. God is not primarily concerned with your happiness, folks. He's concerned with your holiness, which then is your joyfulness. We must know who God is. We must know God, what God expects from us. We need to know the essentials and the non-negotiables so that when we encounter a crisis, we can encounter it well to his glory. True faith is founded on essentials. That's not all. Number two, the second critical component of faith in a crisis is it's firm even though you're alone or seemingly alone. Now picture the scene here in our passage. Carmel, Mount Carmel. If you've ever been there, you'll know that this is a, a mountain range, but it's not like, you know, the Rockies or something, okay? It, it ranges from about 470 foot of elevation to 1,742 feet of elevation. It's a little range of hills, mountains, whatever you want to call them, that run northwest to southeast from the Mediterranean Sea to the, the fertile plain of, of Dothan. And it's there that this scene takes place. It's a beautiful, lovely setting. The sea's over here. The valleys are over there. And all these people are arriving now. Hundreds of prophets are decked out in their priestly kind of robes, right? Colorful. Each one of them has a necklace. that We know that these guys wore necklaces because of their affection for the sun that was designed to catch and reflect the sun who they worshiped. So there's all this pageantry. The king arrives, his regal attire. And so you have this kind of the world's greatest gathering together kind of thing. It's an Oscar ceremony or, you know, something along those lines. Now contrast that for a second with our guy, Elijah. All the pageantry, all the color, all the flickering lights. And here's this guy, Elijah. He's, he's alone. He, he's by himself. He's a gaunt man. He, he's crudely clothed. He's coarse in appearance. His hair is disheveled probably, and his eyes are like steel. And what happens? And I love this. Look at verse 21. There's no intimidation here. Elijah comes near to all the people, and he says this. He says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. I love that. Literally what he says there is, how long are you going to limp about in a fork in the road? The word hesitate there is the same word as leaping that you'll see later in verse 26 when it's talking about Baal's prophets. And it was used like a bird on a branch. It's just kind of flittering around if you've ever watched that. I have hummingbirds in our backyard. They're always just, man, they can turn on a dime. And that's the way these guys, there's, 
let's, let's talk about Yahweh. Let's talk about Baal. Let's talk about the Asherah. They're just popping around everywhere. And he says, how long are you going to do that? Today, people hop between the church and their own selfish interests. And the question becomes down to Jesus' words, right? Who are you going to serve? If you remember Revelation chapter three, Jesus said, I know your deeds that you're not cold nor you're hot. I would that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. And I just want to spit you out of my mouth. In the words of the Sermon on the Mount, no man can serve two masters, right? And that's where the Israel found themselves. And there's Elijah. Now he's firmly speaking the truth, even when it's not popular. Even when there's not a crowd behind him going, yeah, Elijah, good job, right? I'm afraid we have become people who in our age of political correctness and tolerance, we are afraid to speak directly when we need to. There is a place, folks, and don't miss us, for thus saith the Lord. When God says it, it's true, and it's right. And what we find here in this book is that way. And I use a simple logic here, really. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. Halak is the Hebrew word. It literally is walk that way. <laughs> but if Baal, follow him. Now, Elijah was not confused if God or Baal is right. He's just saying, guys, do you not see the discrepancy here, the hypocrisy in your lives? If God's God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. You know, that's, why are you playing both ways? Look at verse 21. But the people did not answer him a word. No response. Blank stares. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. Again, I, I, Elijah could have said, you, you've chosen your path, I'm out here. But he didn't. What does he do? By the way, and this is a ministry pitfall. Sometimes you feel like you're alone. He's not really alone. You didn't know that, right? And you see that later in his story. But he, he's alone there. No doubt about that, other than God, right? So I own him left, a prophet of the Lord, and Baal's prophets are 450. And here it gets beautiful, folks. Look at verse 23. Now, <laughs> one little word, right? Now let, us, let them give us two oxen. And here he goes, man. He's like, here's the plan. There's Elijah just firmly pressing onto the task that God has given him in spite of the fact that there's opposition. God had a task for him and he pressed on. You know what? He has tasks for us too, folks, and we need to press on regardless of opposition. Have you thought about that? I mean, think about that for a little bit. What does God charge you with as a believer saved by the grace of God? Think about it. Name some stuff, anybody. Share the word of God, right? Teach others, make disciples, right? Share the gospel with those who need to hear it. That's a, a, a very clear task in scripture, isn't it? Now, you may be standing in your workplace and you alone stand for Christ. And there may be 450 other people who are mocking it, mocking him. Does that mean you shouldn't press on with your task? 
Does that mean you shouldn't be faithful to what the Lord has commanded you to do? That you shouldn't look for those opportunities to, to care about them enough to talk to them about the thing that is the most important truth in the world. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save their soul like it saved your miserable soul and my miserable soul. Sharing, living out the word of God. I mean, you think about it. Living out God's word in front of a watching world can make you look pretty dumb. I mean, given of your income to the church, to God's work, to missionaries, things like that. How much the world has extra money that you don't have, right? Because you are saying, you know, I'm going to be faithful. How silly do, does that look if you were to tell people at your office that, yeah, I just gave, you know, my Christmas my, or my, my uh, spring vacation money to a missionary who's going to Peru who needed to get some money to get out of here and go take the gospel to people. And they're like, what? Uh, you see, as you stand for truth of God's word, it doesn't make sense to the watching world a lot of times. I mean, to them, they, they look at you and they may even say to you that you're gullible or you're pathetic or you're not a thinker. You believe in creation? Are you nuts? You know what? Regardless of what they say, regardless of where they stand, what are you and I to do? Stand firm, even though you feel alone at times. Verse 23. Now, let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I'll not put a fire under it. Then you call in the name of your God. I'll call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that's a good idea. <laughs> he gives them first choice, right? Okay, guys, you, you, there's two oxen. If one of them looks a little crispy to you, a little dry, why don't you pick that one out, right? He looks like he'll burn a lazy. Go for it, you know? And you go first. And they're like, okay. That falls right in. Bell, fire, blah, you know? So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourself and prepare it first for you are many and call on the name of your God. Put no fire underneath it. Then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped. That's that word I was talking about for hesitate. They leaped about the altar which they had made. So you got the picture, right? It's got to be like a crazy commotion, right? Here's this altar. Here's the ox. And they're like, oh, yeah. And Elijah's standing there, and he's firmly showing the pitfalls of this opposing doctrine. Verse 27, it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, here's what you guys need to do. You need to call out with a loud voice. I mean, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's a little hard of hearing. Maybe he left his hearing aid in the nightstand. He's a God, maybe he says, maybe he's occupied or gone aside. That's a, by the way, is a Hebrew word picture that doesn't come across very well in the English. What it means is maybe he's going to the restroom. <laughs> maybe he had to take a potty break. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he took a vacation. Maybe he's off today. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. You know, he, your gods can get tired. In Psalm 115, we find a similar thing in verses four through eight in a passage that is holy sarcasm. It says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, 
but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts them. You can carve these things out. You can put little ears and eyes and all this kind of stuff on it, but they don't do anything. And you know what? You're becoming a dumb creature in the process yourself, just like them. And, and you can see the ridiculousness of the idea that I can make something that is worthy of my worship, whether it be a business or an empire or a family or anything else. Wood, gold, style, it's just stuff. Dollars, prestige, power, it's just as silly. But when you think about the one true God, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? That's a whole different one there. I mean, he is a God, check this out, who can create with a word. <laughs> Try that one sometime. Uh, let there be Subway. It's near lunch, I'm getting hungry. That didn't happen. Why? I'm not God. Amen? You thankful? You should be. He can put life, check this out, in a barren womb. He, he can shut the mouth of a hungry lion. <laughs> he can raise a man from the dead. He can convert a wretched sinner to a child of God. <laughs> Pretty awesome. That's our God. He's not like some wooden thing with some gold crusted on it, jewel here, you know, and things like that. He is the almighty creator God who is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all we can ask or think. I has not seen, ear cannot, has not heard. We cannot begin to comprehend even the most infinitesimal part of this amazing God that we serve. But look at their little God here. He's not omnipresent. In fact, he seems human at best. He's asleep. He's on vacation. <laughs> so Elijah calls him on it. He exposes that wrong doctrine. Check it out. What's their response? Look at verse 28. They cry out with a loud voice. They, they're going to say, well, maybe we're not doing enough here. Isn't that the works-based way of religion, right? Well, maybe we just need to... Crank it up a notch. They cried out with a loud voice. They begin to cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushes out of them. What a beautiful sight this must have been, right? And that just charges them up even more. Verse 29, and when it came about that when midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. That's about 3 p.m., okay? And check this out. But there was three things. There was no voice. Just crickets, right? No one answered and no one paid attention. Just a bunch of no's. See the response of a God of your own making? But our God is so very different. He sees us through. You see, when your true faith is focused on the essentials, and when your truth, faith is firm, even though it seems to be at times alone. And when our true faith, third component, is focused upon God, the recipe is in place 
for God to be glorified. See, at this time, Elijah could be so very confident because his focus was not on these guys cutting themselves and dancing around and all that. His focus was upon his God. Now check out the contrast as Eliza shows his God, shows Yahweh to him. Look at verse 30. So they've danced around. They've done their tricks. Has, there, has fire fallen? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? No. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. I love that because it's kind of like, you know, magician. You know, let's, let me just, I want you to see that there's nothing funny going on here. He's not like a magician, but, you know, I want you to come close. I don't want you later to go, you know, we weren't very close. I wonder if he had a big lighter behind the altar or something like that. Come closer. I want you to see there's no tricks going on here. All the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. That's the state of Israel at that point. The altar of the Lord had been torn down. And he came and he brought the focus back to God, Yahweh, the covenant God who had made an agreement, right? Who, Who had come and given his covenant to Israel, to the 12 tribes, right? And he begins to repair that altar. He took, verse 31, 12 stones according to the number of tribes, the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel should be your name. Boy, just think about that picture for a little bit. We get lost in the fire coming down and all that. But here's a guy that's just basically saying, you know, this is not what it's supposed to look like. Let me get this stone. Boom, Benjamin. Let me get this stone. Boom, Judah. Here's another stone. Boom, Manasseh. And people standing there from Israel going, well, that's, that's my tribe. Yeah, yeah, we're supposed to, we were covenanted to him. He's putting this together so we can see this relationship that he has with us. This is not some faraway, distant, uncaring God who who has no interest in us. He is a God who is personal to us, right? And Elijah's repairing the altar stone by stone. Verse 32, so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. There's Yahweh again, right? And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Everybody knows what that means, so I don't need to comment on it. Then he arranged the wood, and he cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. Now, so far, pretty much like the other guys, the other, and he repaired the altar, and he built a trench. But he, he cuts the ox up, and he lays it on the wood. Now he does something that's very unique. He says to the people, he says, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. What? You know, it's going to be pretty tricky to get fire to come down from heaven. Do you really need the water? What are you trying to prove here, right? Well, I know what he's trying to prove. He's trying to prove that God is powerful and God is God, right? I love it because if you read some liberal theologians, here's what they do with this. See, this is a proof that this is not a true story because they were in a drought. Where would they get water? That's their biggest problem with the story. He sends them down the hill. By the way, I've been there. You go down the hill. There's a stream down the hill. There's a, there's a, there's a spring-fed stream. This is not going to dry out just because of a drought, right? It's not a real big one, but it's there, okay? And they get pitchers, and these are not like, you know, you go to Pizza Hut and get a pitcher of Coke or something, you know? This is not a little pitcher like this. They go get these big earthenware pitchers, you know, and they towed them, towed them up the hill. These people were men, by the way. 
These were not like, you know, Renaissance painting guys that were feminine running up and down the hill. These were men. They're carrying big things of water, right? And so they go and they get the four pitchers, right? And they fill them with water and they pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Slick. This is going to be awesome if this works out, right? It's not enough. He says, do it a second time. And they went down. They came back up. All the time. What's Israel thinking? Wow. You know, this takes some time. Picture this. This is not as fast as I'm reading it here. Do it a third time. They did it a third time. At this point, when they pour out the last four pitchers onto the altar, it says in verse 35 that water flowed around the altar. It filled the trench with water. This thing, folks, was drenched. I love this, and let me tell you why, and this is really important for you and I. Whenever we face these crises, this is so important. You need to understand Elijah's view of God here, and you need to mimic that view of God. Elijah had a large God. Elijah's God was not impotent. There's no little God here. I love what Howard Hendricks once said. He said, the size of your God will determine the size of your theology. It's true. When you have a little God, man, we just run. We think, oh, any penny, right? The the, The sky is falling. There's a great Hebrew scholar by the name of Robert Dick Wilson. Went to Princeton Theological Seminary. and um, He had a student who you may have heard of, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Barnhouse was a guy who preached through Romans at 10th Pres in, in Philadelphia. And uh, well, that's what he's most known for. Just a great man of God. Well, he went to seminary there, studied under Robert Dick Wilson. And 14 years after he graduated, he'd come back to preach at the seminary in Miller Chapel. And, and you can imagine, you know, it's very, you know, Presbyterians, they're not like most evangelicals. You know, they're, they're like hanging out pretty tight, you know, with robes and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of intimidating. And uh, Robert Dick Wilson tells him, says, you know, if you come back, I'm going to come hear you preach. But if you come back, I'm not going to hear you preach again. Just before you preach. Why? He says, I'll tell you. So he preached his sermon afterwards. He said, I'm still eating at me. Why will you not come back and hear me preach? He says, I only come once. I, I come to see if my students have matured into being big godders or little godders. Once I know if they're a big godder or a little godder, I know how their ministry is going to turn out. Some men have a little God and they're always in trouble with him and he can't do any miracles and he can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture and he doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. Those people are little godders. Then there are, he said, people who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. He said, you, Donald, have a great God. And he'll bless your ministry. And he turned and walked out. See, Elijah had an accurate view of God. And that is that God's a great God. God's a big God, not a little God. So it was no big thing to Elijah to pour a bunch of water on this thing. That was not a, not a stretch at all. Because his God was big enough. His God could speak the ox into flame, right? Verse 36. 
Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and he said, here he prays, okay. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done these things at your word. He goes to prayer. He heads to the source. He asks of the great God, simple request. There's no hysterics. There's no frantic gyrations, no prancing, dancing, or lancing. There's nothing like that. He's just quiet, confidently, boldly approaching the throne and asking, right? He knows his relationship. It's based on the covenant. Oh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. By the way, we approach even better in a sense as we go to him as a father. It's not merely a covenant, but it's Abba Father, right? He says, verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Do you see the relationship here as he comes to him, just pouring out his heart and his concern, his concern for God's people and God's glory. Do you see that? Let them know that you're God. I'm so sick of seeing your glory stolen or attempted to be stolen by these people who want to follow Baal or the Asherah or something else. Lord, show them who you are. Show them that you are a mighty and awesome God. Let them know for sure. By the way, the fact that he went to him in prayer shows very, very clearly the thing that we most need to understand. We don't do it. We are dependent upon him. And it's God who gives the results. Most people miss that. The effect, folks, is up to God. You can share your faith. You can share the gospel. And some people do this and they go out and say, you know, I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with some people. And after a couple of people say, you know, that's not for me, then they get discouraged, right? We've all felt like that, haven't we? Who shared our faith? But do you understand that it's God who does the work? We're messengers, mouthpieces. We need to fall on our face and say, God, I'm going to go bring your message. Please work to your glory in this situation, whatever you see fit. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about all these variety of gifts, and it says there's one effect, right? Because there's one God. He's the one who brings the effect. Most people judge churches on numbers and nickels and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, that's not the judgment. The judgment is, do we stand before God and are we seeking to follow him? And whatever the result is, we leave in his hand and it's for his glory and not ours. A church of 10,000 is not better than a church of 200. If that church of 10,000 is watered down and the church of 200 is loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? By the way, a church of 10,000 loves the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a church of 200 loves the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they're both great in the sight of the Lord and both give glory to him. Primary, primary concern is God's glory. He's like, God, let them see who you are. Turn their heart back. You're gonna be the one that turns it back. Please, Lord. And as he finishes his prayer, verse 38, <laughs> then, the fire of the Lord fell. I love this, by the way. 
and it consumed, check this out, the burnt offering. Okay, check, it's over. No, that's not all it consumed. What? It consumed the burnt offering and the wood. All right, those things burn. And the stones, <laughs> check that out, right? I've been camping a few times in my life, and I can tell you with all sincerity that stones do not make good kindling. And the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What else could they do, really? That's exciting, isn't it? Those are exciting times, these crisis moments when faith is called on the line. You know, I've seen it where people, I remember a buddy of mine, he got cancer. He died 10 years ago last week and he got cancer and he died. And you know what? When he got his cancer and I went in to see him in the hospital, and he got his diagnosis. You know what his first words to me was? It was like, hey, I can't wait to see what God's gonna do with this. And he wasn't talking about, oh, God's gonna heal me. I've got enough faith, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't that at all. He said, God could heal me, or he could just use this to show glory's name, show how I, I can have peace in the middle of a hard time. I pray that whatever days I got left, he'll use me for him, and he did. <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? Is that your prayer, my prayer? Whatever, you, I mean, we may be sitting here with cancer and don't know, right? Or whatever, it doesn't matter. How many days do you got left? Tell me how many days you got left. You don't know. But can you be used for the glory of God and the rest of them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whatever situation, all the unique situations that are surrounding us in this room, there are opportunities for the word of God to go forth and impact a generation that we live in. We need to be sure to learn from the example of Elijah and how true faith handles a crisis. We gotta, be handle, we gotta stand on those essentials, folks. We gotta know the non-negotiables. We must be in the word. We need to be firm, even though it feels like we're all alone in the situation. Firm in speaking the truth, even when it's unpopular. Firm in pressing forward with our God-given task. Firm in exposing the pitfalls of opposing doctrine. When we must be focused upon God, practicing God's ways, having an accurate, large view of God and going to him as the source in prayer and being concerned for his glory and knowing that the effect is his business. Dr. Richard Harvey tells a story of a chemistry professor who lectured against prayer in his classroom for three periods leading up to Thanksgiving, he would just mock the whole idea that prayer could work. He was so sarcastic, he ridiculed prayer and had the whole unbelieving room in stitches laughing at just the foolishness of prayer. At the close of his first lecture that he did on it, he would say, by the way, is there anybody in this room after all this who still believes in prayer? He would step in front of the lecture table with a two-quart glass flask. There was a concrete floor in the classroom. He says, if anybody does, I'm going to ask you to stand and pray that when I drop this flask, it won't break. And all your prayers and everything your mommy taught you and your daddy taught you and your Sunday school teachers taught you will not keep this flask, flask from breaking when it hits that concrete when I drop it. I've been doing this for 15 years. There was a freshman in the class who was a chemistry ma major who this really bothered him. And he knew that it could affect his classroom success, 
And it may not be a good idea for him to stand against this uh, tenured professor. But he was just praying, Lord, I just pray that when he says that, that I'd have the strength to stand and say I believe in prayer. And whatever the effect is, whatever happens with the flask isn't the thing, but that I would stand for you. The day came. He'd asked uh, Richard Harvey for prayer on this, and the day came when this professor was going to ask that question. Harvey snuck in the back door to watch because he knew this, he'd been praying for this guy and knew what he was going to do. And he says he was shaking like he had the palsy. <laughs> he says, he gets to that point after the lecture and all that. He says, now, is there anybody here who still believes in prayer? Giggles in the classroom. And this freshman stuff said, Dr. Lee, I do. Actually, he was real surprised nobody had ever done that. He says, well, we'll, just, we'll all be very reverent here while you pray then. And the young man, he just closed his eyes, lifted his head up to, to heaven and prayed, Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you've heard me. And for your honor and for Christ's sake and for the honor of your servant who puts his trust in you, don't let this last break. Amen. Dr. Lee took the glass flask in his hand. He held it out. And he released it. And instead of falling directly to the floor, it hit the toe of his shoe and rolled over on the concrete floor. (laughs) It didn't break. And the class roared. They went nuts. For the rest of his years, Dr. Lee never lectured against prayer again. And to this day, that story is still told on the campus. You see, we need to have a childlike faith. We need to stand for truth. Regardless of what people say, regardless of what happens, we need to stand up and say, you know what? My Lord who died for me is the most important thing in my life. Important person, important relationship in my life. And he who would stand and take my sin upon himself so that I might live, What immense sacrifice am I making to stand and be the voice of his his word in my generation? Right? Too often we're like Peter standing by the fire and saying, I don't know him. And going away and weeping bitterly. Hey, we're fallen, right? We are not perfect and we will not be perfect this side of heaven you know that and we'll fail on this many many times in our life I have you have we will unfortunately again and because we're because we have a gracious God we're so thankful he forgives us right and when we repent and come back to him isn't that amazing and awesome but as we go through that process of progressive sanctification should we not more and more having seen the hand of God in our life so many times, and like Joshua setting up the stones in the places where they would walk past them before they went to conquer the, the communities within, over the Jordan. Should we not remember and rely upon God more and more each day?
having seen his faithfulness, having seen his love and care and providence in our life over and over again, is it such a big deal that we, we not stand up in a lost and dying generation where the voice of, the, of truth is, is weak and feeble and dying away and share God's truth in love with a generation that has no hope? Can we give them hope? So you and I have been called to go and make disciples, to tell others about this great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who is able to wash away our sins, who is able to forgive us of all our sins, and more than that, take us and transform us into new creatures. He enables us. He he gives us understanding. He gives us his spirit to indwell us who seals us for a whole, he gives us an inheritance. We are not our own anymore. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Now we're slaves to righteousness. We have been put in a new position. We are ambassadors for Christ. What an exciting thing to have. What a glorious calling this is. And God placed you in your Belinda or Anaheim or Fullerton or Garden Grove or Gardena or Valencia or somewhere so that you could be used to be his mouthpiece to your families, to your neighbors, to the people you work with so they may have a chance to hear the truth of the gospel that God may draw them to himself, save them like he saved us and give creation a chance to glorify him yet again. What's better than that? Well, I'll tell you what's not better than that. Everything else. Had my Aggies won, it wouldn't have been better than that. Were I the king of the earth, it would not be better than that. If I lived forever here, it couldn't be better than that. There's nothing better than having a great God and him loving you enough to save you and then send you to do his work on his behalf through you. He wants to work. The eyes of the Lord, remember, move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Second Chronicles 16.9a. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, which penetrates and shows us for our for our, 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 our deficiencies. It shows us where we lack. It, it convicts us of that, but it also doesn't just leave us there splayed open and, and, and destroyed, but it corrects us and changes us. It just doesn't reprove, but it corrects and it trains us in righteousness. It shows us what's right. It shows us what's wrong. It shows us how to make the wrong right and how to keep the right right. Lord, may we increasingly honor you with our lives. May we be folks who stand firm in our faith, even in crises. May this church continue to grow closer to you as individuals and corporately. And Lord, just thank you that as the cricks are coming, just the, the ministries that are ahead that no one's even quite imagined yet. And Lord, I pray that each one would be found faithful to your glory so that sinners can be converted unto you. In Christ's name.